Welcome to the podcast of ideas. I'm Rob Lyons. In this edition, we talk to Alan Hudson about university in one day and the idea that man is the measure of all things. Jason Smith talks about the Debating Matters National Final, which takes place next weekend at the British Library. And we have an extract from a Birmingham Salon event, which discusses issues around transsexuality and gender today. But first, the news. And to discuss the events of the last two weeks, I'm joined by my colleague David Bowden. What stories have you noticed in the news? Well, the story that's really grabbed my attention was the closure of a bar that I've never been to, the Arches in Glasgow. And there's a particular reason why that kind of grabbed my attention, partly because it percolated through my attention. Lots of people who I, I know in the arts world were horrified by the closure of this of this place in Glasgow, which has been regarded as you know one of the kind of real successes of Glasgow's cultural regeneration, that this is a place that put on pioneering theatre and performance art pieces, as well as running very successful club nights. Obviously, their successful club nights help subsidise their arts content. Um, and why it came onto my attention is that it's the latest example of a successful bar which has faced intense problems, not because of the fact that it's it's not generating enough money or that it's it's struggling to keep up with the changes to the economy, but bluntly because of licensing changes. Uh, they'd been refused a late licence for their club nights because they were it was felt that they weren't cooperating successfully enough with police on trying to tackle drug-taking and irresponsible drinking in their venues, even though that by all accounts this has been one of the most cooperative venues in Glasgow, but they still had not met the incredibly high standard that has been placed upon them. And that strikes me as very important because this is a trend that you're seeing across the board now. It's something that we've discussed before in this podcast, um, and it's something that we are looking at in terms of the war in the nighttime economy. In London, bars are closing down left, right and centre, not because they've been priced down to the market, but because they cannot keep up with the enormous costs of policing and regulation. And this is becoming really striking. Every time you go out now, every time you go to a festival, you go through almost something that feels like intense airport security. In fact, even 15 years ago, this was kind of unusual to go through this when you went through airport security. Now you kind of just take it as normal when you're going out in a bar. When you speak to bar owners, you talk about the fact that they have to take biometric scanning now that they have to take on huge amounts of information which in any other walk of life would be discussed as a major data security question this would be viewed as an enormous infringement on people's civil liberties and there would be a big discussion going on about it politically the fact that you're just expected to do it every time you want to go out for a few drinks on a friday night is viewed as normal it just seems like it's going to be a trend which is going on more and more and more unless people try and take a stance uh, against it fortunately next week i'm discussing this at, a, at the City of London Festival. So I'm looking forward to having a discussion with local licensing authorities and some local bar owners to actually try and start having discussions about how we try and fix this. Otherwise, we are facing a, a real kind of world now where every time you go out, it will be heavily sanitised, heavily regulated. And that it's not just bars and kind of clubs and super clubs that are facing this, but arts venues that stand apart from Arts Council funding through funding themselves, through running successful club nights, are also now been hammered by this, and I think it's I think it's becoming actually a, a bit of a scandal brewing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've I've faced that as well. We had Alan Miller on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, and he's 
launched this nighttime industries association and i remember going to his bar the vibe bar in brick lane and being really shocked that i left there at six o'clock in the evening to go somewhere else come back at 10 o'clock at night and as you say faced airport style security and even if the bar owners do cooperate with all that sort of stuff they are going to be in the situation where they're going to have to pass the enormous cost of all that onto their punters as well, which is make, going to make it more expensive to go out in the evening as because it's just going to be more expensive, more tedious, and as you say, more sanitised. In terms of the story that I picked up on this week, it's the issuing by the Vatican of a papal encyclical on the environment, and this has attracted an enormous amount of attention. The basic message seems to be that we should care more about the environment and that global warming is the product of what the Pope says, our collective selfishness. And he says things like, The violence present in our hearts, wounded by sin, is also reflected in the symptoms of sickness evident in the soil, in the water, in the air, and in all forms of life, which is sort of very dramatic language. Now, it's not exactly the first time that the Vatican's got itself involved with environmental issues. Pope John Paul II was very active on this sort of thing, and actually, right back in 1972, Pope Paul VI spoke at a UN conference on the environment in Stockholm. But what's striking about this is, first of all, that it's just so political, because it's very much aimed at the Paris climate talks in December, which are supposed to be the culmination of building to a new treaty to replace the Kyoto Protocol. And the second thing is that just who the Pope's new fanboys are, because every environmentalist under the sun seems to be praising the Pope. To give you a flavour of it, Professor Miles Allen, who's at the University of Oxford, has said, if Pope Francis can't speak up for our unborn grandchildren, then God help us all. So it's it's astonishing that people who would normally hate the Catholic Church on most issues, whether it's its opposition to birth control or its attitude to things like gay marriage, are like suddenly becoming huge fans of Pope Francis. So it's, it's, it's a very interesting alliance, but also it says a lot about the changing nature of the papacy, that a lot of liberals in general seem to be very keen on Pope Francis and his comments about social justice and the environment in general. And we're having a session at the Battle of Ideas this year called Is the Pope a Catholic? And we'll be discussing that further because I think it's a very interesting trend. What else have you picked up in the news, Dave? Well, the other big story that has dominated attention has been the Rachel Dolezal case. I think that's how you say the surname, although I'm not entirely convinced there is this uh, woman in Spokane, Washington, who was the leader of the local branch of the NAACP as well as being a uh, a lecturer in in race studies and had become very much known as a local activist who had confronted lots of issues of racist uh, attacks placed upon her. She had spoken out an awful lot around racial politics kind of in the region, very much discussed at great length the way in which black culture would be aped by white people, essentially, that they would try and butt into debates around racial politics that should be left to racial activists such as her. Um, unfortunately, she was unmasked um, by her own parents as a white person, actually, that she wasn't in any way, shape or form black, and that she had created this very kind of elaborate, water mitty fantasy kind of world, really, of this whole story of her ability to speak on racial politics. And this has kind of obviously been picked up as a kind of a very bizarre and in many ways quite amusing sort of story of somebody who is so kind of vociferously critical, um, using a lot of the kind of right academic terminology of exactly what she is guilty of herself in a, in a much more extreme version of what anyone could possibly imagine. Now, it could be that she's 
slightly a kind of just a water mitty kind of character or wonder mitty maybe and you shouldn't read too much into the actions of a of a clearly quite disturbed individual um, to have gone to these considerable lengths but I think what's really fascinating about the debate is that you know quite a few people have, have raised the question of well is this any different from being transgendered yeah is can you not be transracial in a certain way if, if you're transgendered you can uh, assert that you have you know, a gender or a sex which is different from your own and you ask people to recognize it and yet you know, people have come out very sternly and insisted that trans racialism is not a is not a thing you can't just declare yourself to be to be black but i think that's interesting in because the debate has not been had out very clearly um, so people were just asserting that you're kind of asserting a series of kind of orthodoxies that have been fired around all of these issues, but it's not obvious to most people why that wouldn't be be the case. Now it's, it seems to me that's the kind of issue that should be had out and debated and discussed at kind of considerable length without the kind of accusations that normally get around it. I think what's frustrating about the issues around transgender issues and trans identity and and race issues is exactly the fact that these are complex, difficult subject throwing up challenges that we haven't encountered before and increasingly the rhetoric around um, trigger warnings and harm and trauma and victims is that to even question some of these orthodoxies is to do great harm to people and I think at the very least what this case should highlight and 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 show up in a certain way is that life is not that easy to do that actually people should be entitled to ask questions without being uh, accused of you know committing a hate crime People should throw these things up for discussion. And actually, they should be able to call foul on certain arguments and positions that they view as being divisive and uh, exclusionary without that you know, itself being thrown back in their face. Absolutely. Yeah. A very good article on uh, Spiked, the online magazine, by um, the American writer Sean Collins, which made the point that in the political circumstances we find ourselves in where you you can't simply just like want a certain political outcome for example equal rights for black people you're actually excluded from being able to do that unless you have real authenticity unless you've you are black and it's into those circumstances where Rachel Dolezal comes because you know she's got a black step family and she's obviously very sympathetic towards black people and would clearly like to campaign for them as she has done but ends up in this peculiar situation where that's impossible unless you are actually black and it's a very very divisive and as you say exclusionary kind of politics that we're facing now where you can't you can't look beyond your own experience and be able to see and sympathize with the plight of other individuals you have to actually have that experience yourself and I think that's very much the detriment of of politics and very much the detriment of free argument and free speech as you say. Since 2011, the Institute has been hosting a residential weekend each July called The Academy. With the aim to offer a taste of university as it should be, the event comprises three days of lectures and discussions on the great ideas in literature, history, classics and philosophy. This year, for the first time, we have taken the spirit of that event and created a new one aimed at 16 to 18-year-olds called University in One Day, which will be held at Goodenough College in London on the 1st of July. To tell us more about the event and the themes of that day, I'm joined by the co-convener of the event, Professor Alan Hudson, Director of Leadership and Public Policy Programmes at the University of Oxford and Professor of China Executive Leadership Academy at Pudong. So, Alan, after that very long job title... (laughs) um, What's the aim of university in one day? 
the aim is to move as far away as possible from the idea that going to university is merely an instrumental element of getting a job and that knowledge, which should be pursued for the sake of it, is only useful insofar as it advances your individual career. So we are trying to get across the idea that it's just amazing what people have done in the past and therefore what they might be capable of in the future. So take it from that, that universities aren't really doing that anymore? Many universities aspire to do that and loads of people within the university still have that as a point of departure. I would say that policy constrains them from doing that and further to that, that even though you can't reduce education to a question of resources, is that many people, especially in the state sector, are not given the opportunity to do that. And so as well as the idea of uh, education in and for itself, we're trying to get more people engaged with the idea that subject knowledge and the connections between all the disciplines you mentioned earlier are vital uh, for making sense of the world. Right, OK, so let's look at some of the content. The, the event, well, this year's event is titled Man as the Measure of All Things. Now, that's a phrase I've heard before, but I'm ashamed to say I don't know where it comes from. Can you explain a bit about where that comes from and why you've chosen that as the theme for the day? Well, of course, uh, the great difficulty in university in a day is um, not what you put in, is what you leave out. And so in one sense, we're preparing the ground for the future. So we're looking historically, we're looking at a defined period from the Renaissance to the Enlightenment, in future programmes, we'll look at the period uh, from the Enlightenment towards the present day, as well as replicating this. The point about the shift in human consciousness, which the Renaissance initiated and the Enlightenment tried to consolidate, was the idea that we'd need no other external agent for understanding our own way of being in the world. So that's the point. It's a, a humanist projection. In a sense, we're reproducing the classical humanist uh, curriculum, which was reintroduced during the, the Renaissance. But even more, we're looking at the sense that we define the world, we make the world. In that sense, that homophaber, which is the close approximation to the phrase you used, um, put forward by the Pico de la Mirandola, who was one of the shorts that we're introducing, made that point is that man is the maker of his own destiny. Because you're looking at a number of different things, like arts and literature and, and history. So, so give me some examples of, of how you're going to illustrate that point. It's very difficult to do without sounding sort of trendy and modular about this because being cross-disciplinary is um, a la mode, has been for several years. But um, what we're trying to do is to illustrate that there was a different way of understanding the world which permeated and percolated through uh, historical consciousness, uh, views through literature... Uh, the development of the natural sciences and some of the applied sciences. So we're going to use examples from architecture, uh, Brunelleschi's dome in Florence. Remember also that he was the person that re, uh, really defined perspective in Western art. We're looking at Tyndall's Bible, uh, not because we were uh, particularly obsessed with the theology of it, but because it was written in English and therefore accessible to the vast majority of the population or the literate elements of the population. We're going to look at Galileo's experiments so that we can look at scientific method. You know, we're not primarily interested in um, what happens when you drop two balls of disparate weight from the Leaning Tower of Pisa, which never happened. But we're looking at how science understands the world. 
And so another example, one of the longer lectures, we're looking at the Enlightenment through the 1755 Lisbon earthquake, in which every major intellectual in Europe decide, tried to work out why this was happening and why, whether God did it, whether it was uh, a la uh, American Republicans, 9-11, or the Lisbon earthquake was um, the result of the bad people rejecting the church, or Rousseau, that he didn't like cities, or Kant, let's understand more about earthquakes. Yeah. So we're trying to get that sense of the world changing in that key historical period and communicate it as a rounded picture to as many people as possible in the shortest possible time. They have to work hard, they have to think hard, and we hope they go away thinking, oh, I'll have a bit more of that. Well, uh, looking at the programme myself, I have to say I'm very glad I'm going to be attending in a professional capacity because it looks absolutely fantastic and filling in all the gaps that I didn't get in my education. Uh, if you'd like to find out more about University in One Day, visit instituteofideas.com forward slash events and you'll find out more about it there. And in the meantime, thank you very much, Professor Alan Hudson. Thank you. Cheers. This year's Debating Matters competition comes to its grand conclusion at the end of this month with a national final to be staged at the British Library from the 26th to the 28th of June. To talk about the event, I'm joined by DM's Partnership Coordinator, Jason Smith. So, who's taking part in the final? We have all 12 winners of the regional finals from, from the 12 regions of the country and lots of other people taking part as judges and uh, alumni who are coming down to chair debates. Uh, but uh, mainly it's the we're here to see the 12 schools. OK, and uh, they're a pretty diverse bunch of schools, are they? They are. Uh, we have a couple of private schools, mainly they're uh, standard comprehensives, a um, few academies thrown in for good luck. Right, OK. And uh, so what will the topics under debate be? So Saturday, it's a round-robin system, so all 12 of them get to debate each other uh, three times. Um, and they're going to be uh, debating topics such as there's no longer a need for public libraries, uh, space exploration is a waste of time and money, and uh, physician-assisted suicide should be legalised. So these are all hot topics that are in the news and... Uh, we're very excited to be getting 16, 17-year-olds arguing about these things. OK. It's a three-day event. So what else goes on around the debating competition itself? We're kicking off on the Friday with a drink reception and canapes, courtesy of the British Library, and that includes a tour of the current Magna Carta exhibition, which, uh, which is great and well worth seeing. Then after we've heard all of the results for all of the debates on the Saturday um, in the afternoon, we then have a, de a balloon debate on what is the greatest scientific discovery. That's normally a jovial, light-hearted affair, Victorian parlour game, get thrown out of a balloon, you know. OK. And then the national final itself it is open to all comers. People can come along and, and, and watch the debates in action, especially on the Sunday, I believe. Absolutely. We're inviting everybody to come along and uh, witness the two semi-finals and the final debate on the Sunday. Um, and we're kicking off first thing in the morning, continuing the Magna Carta theme for the, the weekend by uh, the first semi-final debate is, in a digital age, we should not expect our online activities to remain private. So that will be uh, discussing Tim Berners-Lee's idea that we need a new Magna Carta for a digital age. Um, and then we're going on to uh, Western Museums should agree to repatriate cultural artefacts. And then in the afternoon, the grand final is uh, we should permit the use of performance-enhancing drugs in sport. 
which is, of course, very, very topical with uh, some of the things that have been going on of late. I also believe you're starting to recruit for next year's competition. We are indeed. We uh, started uh, about six weeks ago, so entries are open. All of the details are on the website, www.debatingmatters.com. Oh, so yes, if you are, you are a school teacher or a parent who likes the idea of content-based schools debates on topical issues of the day, then do, uh, do get involved at debatingmatters.com. Thank you very much, Jason Smith. Thank you. The high-profile transformation of former Olympic decathlon champion Bruce Jenner into Caitlyn Jenner caused a storm of publicity and controversy recently. The fierce reaction to the notion that Jenner should still be regarded as a man is typical of how issues of sex and gender are discussed today. These issues were the subject of a recent event organised by the Birmingham Salon, titled Can a Boy Grow Up to Be a Woman? In this extract, cabaret performer and writer Chrissy Daz talks to Helena Goldberg about the sensitivities around trans issues and what gender means today. So we are going to dive straight in and what I think would be useful for you to say a little bit about is why did you decide to write this book? Okay. Well it seems to me as though trans issues have hardly been out of the news from 2013. I mean we, we planned this discussion tonight before Kat- Caitlyn Jenner sort of hit the headlines and became one of the sort of overnight media personalities of the decade. Back in 2013, I think, when Julie Birchall wrote an article in The Observer which caused a storm. Lots and lots of people were up in arms and demanding that she basically get sacked and that the article should be removed, which which it shortly was. And at the time, I just thought... I need to write about this. Initially, it was just the sort of the free speech issue that that worried me because it was like, why are these people so keen to take offence over small things, a lot of them? Some of the things that Julie Birchall wrote were not very pleasant, but a lot of the the storms that have, have risen up over that are about using the wrong pronouns, using words like transsexual when it's gone out of fashion, and using the word transgender as if it was a noun, when apparently it's not a noun, it's an adjective, and that's really offensive to do that. But the more I thought about it, the more I realised that this is much, much deeper than just an issue of people's right to say what they like to think and discuss, and other people demanding that debate gets shut down on the basis of offence. It's much, much deeper than that, and it's seems to be telling us something about the way that society as a whole is developing, the the importance of identity, the breakdown of certainties, and being an issue which applies to a tiny minority. Trans people are, uh, at the highest estimates, about two in a thousand people who have actually uh, fully transitioned. But it's about sex and gender. It's about how we all understand it, and we all have an interest in that. Isn't it counterproductive this preoccupation with using the right term or the right pronoun because I I must admit when Rosie said well why don't you chair this I I was really nervous because I thought well what if I say this wrong thing and you sort of think well couldn't it end up in a situation where people stay clear of anybody Absolutely, yes. I think it's a, it is that is the crux of it in many ways and a, it is a question of not simply being overly aware of etiquette all the time, but of not even exercising your own thoughts, censoring yourself, seeing someone that you think, 
oh, they look a little bit different. I wonder why... Oh, I better not even stray into the territory of thinking that they might be trans. And, of course, if, you, if that's the level of interaction, then there really is no interaction going yeah. on. So, just to try and clarify some of these issues, how should we understand sex and gender? I mean, it could seem completely obvious... Or is it more complex than that? Well, in many ways, the way that the terms tend to be used today it is a little bit messy and interchangeable, and I've not got a problem with that. But some people, sometimes people say the word sex when they really mean the word gender and vice versa. But there is quite an interesting history to it, really. In many ways, people have always understood that the difference between men and women is not purely biological but probably since the scientific revolution of the 19th century. And then when Simone de Beauvoir wrote her very famous sort of groundbreaking book, The Second Sex, where she defined the difference between sex and gender really as being in those, that phrase, one is not born a woman, one becomes a woman. And therefore, that anything which is biologically given is male, anything or female, anything which is not biologically given, is masculine or feminine. And that's basically the um, distinction there. Obviously, if you're a biological determinist, there's no problem. Gender is, is the unmediated expression of sex. If, you're a, if you don't uh, agree with that school of thought, then you will probably want to be a little bit more clear about that distinction. So you're saying, it, you know, what makes a man and what makes a woman cannot be explained solely on the basis of biological... I think everyone would agree that it can't be solely explained, even the most extreme biological determinists mm. would... But they would probably tend to see the cultural influences as, as rather arbitrary and beside the point. Is there a essence to being a woman? I mean, it was an interesting article, I think it might have been posted on the Birmingham Salon page, where a woman was arguing that, in a sense, the preoccupation with changing your gender actually is making gender differences more important than they need to be, because they don't need to define us to the extent that they are. But if you're saying... I've got a male body, but I don't. I'm not a male. I'm a female. But what does that mean? You know, is a female soul a female brain? Yeah, the the, the question about gender as the soul is quite an interesting one because Jan Morris, who was in the 1970s Britain's most famous transsexual woman, um, had been a, a very successful travel writer and journalist. In her book about her sex change, she said, To me, gender is not physical at all, but is altogether insubstantial. It is soul, perhaps. It is a talent. It is taste. It is environment. It's how one feels. It is enlightened shade. It is an inner music. It's a spring in one's step or an exchange of glances. It is more truly life and love than any combination of genitals, ovaries, hormones... It is the essentialness of oneself, the psyche, the fragment of unity. Now, that's quite well written, I think. She's a very good writer. And it does sum up a feeling that was quite prevalent earlier in the 20th century as to what gay men were. It was the the, the idea of the the female soul trapped 
in a man's body, which um, pioneers of gay rights used to use. Partly as an excuse. If this is something that is given, it can't be changed, then it can't, it's, it's wrong to stigmatise it and, and criminalise it. But of course the soul, the idea that the soul has a gender, doesn't really make sense in today's world. Mm. So now, the orthodox view amongst, well, most trans people that I have read about, and most trans people I know personally, will simply say, I have a female brain, but I was born into the wrong body, which has all sorts of repercussions. Firstly, of course, it legitimises the idea that there is an innate difference between men and women, which could be used to excuse um, historical sexism, that really men and women were simply following their nature, which is how we ended up with women as second-class citizens. Also, it, it fundamentally degrades all of us, I think, because it's, it's, it's implying that, that we don't really have any control over who we become. Also, yeah, just sort of, if we do sort of entertain for a moment, is there a difference between a man's brain and a woman's brain. There is a wealth of psychological data on this, all sorts of different um, tests that are done. Most of them show a very, very slight difference. But when you look at these sort of psychological tests, the most dramatic ones, which are things like the um, mental rotation test, where you look at shapes and recognise whether it's the same or not from a different angle, and men tend to score slightly higher on that, which has led a number of psychologists to generalise into two brain types. What is the difference, what, the nature of the two brain types? And the terms that are bandaged about are S-type and E-type brains. So men supposedly have S-type brains. S stands for systematising. So they can do manipulate abstract shapes, numbers, things of that nature, systematic things. Empathising means that you've got a, probably a, a more profound theory of mind so that um, you... you can recognise facial expression a lot more easily. Now, if it's the case that trans women have female brains, then you would not expect to find many trans women who seem to display systematic type of thinking. In fact, trans people I know personally, trans people I don't know personally, I know of, Surprising how many are sort of computer engineers. The woman who invented BBC Basic is a trans woman. Yeah, so it's pointless looking for a, a, an essence. Mm -hmm. It has to be this sort of way of resolving the problem. But it's, it also it has to be deeper than that as well, because that's you know just saying this. What's really has happened recently in the last ten years or so is that the authorities, the state, most people in public, anyone who who disagrees is told to shut up mm. that if you are trans you're the gender you say you are well actually it's not as quite as simple as that because everyone else has a right to their opinion too that is fundamental and it's also fundamental that if you really are you know sort of robust in your sense of yourself you're a trans woman someone disagrees with that that shouldn't really be such a major problem that, um, that, you could, that, that, it, that that opinion has to be forced out of discussion. Hmm. Why has it become such a big issue? Very big question. I think it does fit in with a whole raft of, of thinking to do with diversity. 
a lot of the other the, the old the, the things that were taken up to earlier race sexuality they've sort of reached the point where you can't really go any further in terms of of just changing laws and introducing equalities we've got gay marriage now so so trans was in in, in this one sense was well we need if you've got that way of thinking, you know if, if the state's got that approach that well actually we're going to dismantle all of that old stuff but this sort of approach everything's going to reach a point of exhaustion so there's a sort of a, an impulse to search out more marginal groups so in that sense trans is just the latest fad in that oh and a little bit why are we in this stage well I think it's got a lot to do with a couple of things one is actually the end of the Cold War and what has come up to replace the Cold War because essentially the Cold War worked as a way of um, excusing the capitalist world for its inability to develop the whole world mm. you couldn't develop the rest of the world because because of the, the, the role that the Soviet Union was playing in the world. So once that was gone, that excuse went as well. So and, and what's gradually replaced that is just an overall a general sense of fragility. So the most obvious sense being in environmentalist um, fragility, but it was also it, it it gets inside the individual as well. So individuals are are prized for their fragility for their sense of this. And it makes the trans person an ideal sort of stand-in for, for vulnerability, for fragility, um, for every form of diversity. If you'd like to hear the full recording of the event or would like to find out more about Birmingham Salon, visit birminghamsalon.com. Thank you for listening to the podcast of Ideas. To hear more of our podcasts and subscribe to them, visit instituteofideas.com forward slash podcast. <laughs>